0: David. If I don't know you, I'd love to get to know you. Uh, One of the elders here at Renaissance. Uh, And this morning, as has been mentioned now a few times, uh, we start our Advent series. So, sorry, I'll hold this a little bit closer. Um, We start our Advent series, so we're taking a brief break from the book of Matthew for this month, focusing on Advent. Each week we'll have a specific theme, and as you've already heard, this morning's theme is hope. Our goal through the series is going to be to point to the birth of Christ as that which brings us hope, love, joy, peace, etc. And often, though, maybe not exclusively, but often we're going to start in the Old Testament, hoping to see how the birth of Christ uh, fulfills that. So, today we start with hope. And hope is a tricky thing, right? Recently, I had the opportunity to go to an academic conference of evangelical Christians, the Evangelical Theological Society basically three-day nerd fest. It was awesome. I loved it. Um, and I, I had the opportunity to go to this one panel session called The Future of Christian Higher Education. And as someone getting a PhD in church history and hoping to eventually be a part of Christian higher education, I thought this would be a good thing for me to go to, to learn about. Uh, and they brought up a lot of interesting topics and I got to hear from college and seminary presidents, deans, etc. But at one point they asked, the, the, the panelists, what is the most significant challenge facing university students today? I expected to hear an answer about online versus in-person learning, or class loads, or, you know, the job market, or student loan debt, or something along those lines. Uh, but each person said something to the effect of uh, the rising rates of depression, anxiety, and loneliness in students. They were quick to note that these things are on a catastrophic rise, that they were growing, you know, from the 2010s on and on, uh, and then when COVID hit, they just uh, skyrocketed to levels they've never seen before. One man told the story that at his university, they hired a whole bunch of pastoral counselors to help students with these things, and that sadly, they were experiencing incredible turnover amongst their pastoral counselors, because those people are getting burned out from all the counseling meetings that they're having. And this trend isn't merely among undergraduate university students. A simple Google search will show you that uh, things are pretty discouraging. In nearly every demographic, there's growing anxiety, depression, and loneliness. Whether one looks at men or women, admittedly it's growing faster, most statistics show in women. Whether one looks at young or old, even though it might be growing faster in those under 50, there's consistent theme that anxiety, depression, loneliness, and hopelessness are on the rise. One study in Canada this year noted that, uh, started by researchers from the uh, mental health researchers of Canada, it started out by saying uh, in early 2023, we're looking forward to good results. Finally, the pandemic is behind us. We've got vaccines. Life is back to normal. So they expected uh, rates of of hopelessness to increase. Sadly, they said that things haven't really returned to pre-pandemic levels. They're just Uh, At best, plateauing, or at worst, just continuing to get worse. So, I want to ask the question today is there hope? Is there hope? In a world that's gripped by anxiety, depression, loneliness, in a world in the throes of hopelessness, can we offer hope? In a world that consistently reminds us of our mortality, consistently presents us with difficulty, and consistently wears us down, is there hope? And as I think about these things, two thoughts immediately come to mind, and there's a sense in which these will guide the sermon today, and they're first, that this is natural. Generally speaking, in a world that's turned its back on Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be surprised by hopelessness. Everywhere else that's left to turn is something fleeting. And secondly, this offers an amazing opportunity and a need to proclaim as loud as we can that there is, in fact, hope. And that hope is not found in me or you. It's not found in, you know, girding up our inner strength. It's not found in being who you feel you are on the inside. It's not found in following a strict set of culturally conservative rules that will keep you on a certain path. There's hope, and that's in Jesus Christ. So today's sermon has three main points in the form of questions. First, I'm going to ask, why, are, why do we feel hopeless? Second, how can we feel hopeful And finally, in whom is there hope? The first two questions will come from what we'll talk about in passages of the Old Testament and we will end in Matthew chapter 1. So first, why do we feel hopeless? I want to turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm not going to go into every detail that this passage could possibly have. Uh, It's going to be more of a survey. But I want to begin by reading the first 19 verses. First 19 verses of Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible, it's right there towards the beginning, uh, the third chapter, and I'm going to begin reading that once I find it. Sorry. And it goes like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, Because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So what do we learn from this passage? We see here, this is of course at the very beginning, and we see man sinning against God. There's harmony between God and man in this, uh, prior to this, and it's broken by sin. There are no heroes in this story. Uh, if you were with me at the McGill School of Religious Studies, you could take a class. We would learn about all the crazy ways this has been interpreted to basically make everyone in the story look good, Uh, In fact, they're all cursed. Uh, So Adam's not good, Eve's not good, the serpent's not good. Uh, They all have blame, and they all get a curse. God asks Adam what happened, and he blames his wife. God asks Eve what happens, and she blames the serpent. They're all held responsible for disobeying God. But I ask, why would this alone, this event at the very beginning, bring hopelessness? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 5 that in Adam we share in this curse. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this is where we find the root of hopelessness. This root has grown fully into a big, massive tree. We live in a world beset by sin. We see in the curses that the ground is cursed, We see that there's going to be interpersonal conflict, right? There will be uh, conflicting desires. And, of course, we see that alongside individual sinfulness. We're sinners, and we live in a world full of sinners. The world is broken, and if the story ended here, there'd be hopelessness. Now, you might be thinking that's great for them, but again, does this have consequences beyond just early in Genesis? Does human be, do human beings ever get their act together, right? How has this death spread to all men? So let's jump ahead just a little bit. I'm not going to read all of these passages, but if we go through the Old Testament, we see God's people continuing in this path, right? Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Only a few chapters later, Genesis 6, God sums up his creation by saying, The wickedness of man is great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. So they're wiped out in the flood, and only Noah and his family remains. If we jump ahead, I know this is way ahead, but if we jump ahead to Exodus, right? God miraculously delivers his people out from Egypt. He shows them signs and wonders. And it only takes a little bit for them to worship a golden calf. In Exodus 32, it says this. It says, When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, these were not people who had never heard of God, right? They weren't people who knew nothing of him. No, rather, they were those who had seen his miraculous work and yet worshipped this golden calf. We could go forward into the time of the judges, right? Later, we see God's people. They go into the land that God has promised them, right? God's promised them this land. They're there. Things should be good. But the final verse of the book of Judges sums up that book well. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were living in the promised land. God had promised them this is where you will dwell. They were living proof that God fulfills his promises. Yet they pursued evil. It was the time in which God's people engaged in incredible wickedness. And that wickedness didn't stop when they got a king, right? It says they didn't have a king. Well, If you read through the 1st and 2nd Kings, I know it's a lot, but if you read through it, you'll see many, many times, so-and-so was the king, and he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's a refrain throughout those books, until eventually, God's people are taken into exile. They're taken out of the promised land. In Romans, Paul tells us that in Adam, we have all become children of disobedience. It's in our nature. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This pattern from the Old Testament, it's still alive today. To be right with God, we must be righteous. And none of us, right, would stand before the Almighty Creator saying that we are. Even if we're trying to be a good person, can we really stand before an Almighty, holy God? Are there enough rules we can keep to earn His favor? Is there any goodness that we can do that will turn our hearts away from wanting sin? So I started by saying, why do we feel hopeless? And as we've seen, all of this should, in a certain sense, lead to a feeling of hopelessness. It's natural in our human condition, left to ourselves, to feel hopeless. We have a sin problem, and it's a problem that we cannot get out of on our own. We are separated from our Creator, we're transgressors against God, and that feeling of separation from what we're supposed to be, it's the feeling of the human condition. We were made for fellowship with the Almighty, and through sin, continual sin, sin that if we're honest we just can't stop doing, through that we forfeited this fellowship. So why do we feel helpless? Because left to ourselves that's how really we should feel and we live today in an age in which every imaginable way to tell ourselves that we're doing okay uh, exists but eventually for all of us right reality hits if the statistics are true for many, at least in our day and age for many, something like COVID or something, like that was a reality check. It reminds people that no matter you know, how far we've come and this and that, uh, we are still mortal. It reminds us deep down that we need hope. So now how then, how can we feel hopeful? How can this sin problem be rectified? Clearly we can't do it on our own. So how then do we find hope? The good news is this, even in the midst of all that I just showed you, God was giving a glimmer of hope. Back in Genesis 3, verse 15, we're told that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Someone would come and defeat sin. The name Noah means rest, so even amidst wiping out sinful humanity, God shows that there will someday be rest. And throughout the Old Testament, as God's people continued to sin, he sent them prophets. The prophets both called out the sin that they saw in the people, told them that what would come if they continued, like this exile. But the prophets also pointed to a redeemer. Many of us know the famous passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? God is, is saying through Jeremiah, there's going to be sin, there's going to be exile, it's going to be difficult, but eventually God is going to uh, give hope to his people. In Isaiah it says, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength, in Isaiah 40. But I want to turn in asking this question, how can we feel hope, to Isaiah chapter 53? We'll actually begin reading in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and read until the end of chapter 53. See, in the midst of hopelessness, God tells his people about a redeemer. Here is how we get a glimpse of how we can feel hope. Isaiah 52, 13 says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. So what do we see here? There should be little doubt, especially if we know the story of Jesus' life that this is, this is talking about. We know Jesus was despised and rejected by men. We know that outwardly he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. We know that he was oppressed and afflicted. We know that when he was beaten and crucified like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. These verses tell us the story of Jesus' death. And if you're bored this afternoon, I highly recommend rereading this and thinking on it uh, longer than we have time to right now. But verse 6 in chapter 53 highlights something important. It says, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here we see it stated plainly. We should all be hopeless. We've all turned away. You've turned away. I've turned away. There's no one who hasn't. So how can we be right with God? If our iniquities are laid on ourselves, what then are we to do? But God has laid them on this prophesied servant, Jesus. In verse 11, it tells us that the servant shall make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. And that, friends, is how we can have hope. We can have hope that despite our sin, despite our circumstances, despite our difficulties... We can be accounted righteous because our iniquities have been laid on someone else. Because let's face it, we aren't righteous. But when one bears our sin in our place, then we can be right with God. The point to highlight here is that in the midst of this hopelessness, God, through the prophet Isaiah, promised that one will come who will be pierced for our transgressions, who will be crushed for our iniquities. Through this one, we can be accounted righteous because upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That's how we have hope. So we've seen then why we feel hopeless. Because there's a sin problem. We're disconnected from the creator. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot close this gap, this separation. Yet in the midst of such hopelessness, the Lord has announced that a redeemer will come. How can we be saved? How can we feel hope? It's through someone taking our place. Someone who will come and be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So then one question remains. Who is this person, right? And when are they coming? In whom can we find hope? Where is the Redeemer? Let's then turn to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 21. They say this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph Announced to the Virgin Mary, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born in a manger. This child would save his people from their sins. And again, I won't go into every detail of this passage, or even the various prophecies fulfilled in it. There are three more Advent sermons, after all, this month. But I do want us to gaze at these verses for a moment, because this, this is what we anticipate during the Advent, Advent season. In the period between the end of the Old Testament and these words is approximately 400 years. The prophet Amos predicted that there would be a famine of hearing from the Lord. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. This announcement to Mary broke that famine. Just as God had said a Redeemer would come, This is the one in whom we can have hope. Just as God had said, He would come. The birth of Jesus Christ is only good news, though, for those who recognize their need for a Savior. If you think you're good, what need is there for Jesus? God prophesied about this Redeemer, sent the Redeemer, because human beings had turned their back on him. Our greatest need, then, is to be saved from sin, and God provided for that need. The story of Christmas and the story of Easter are intimately connected. The one who was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities on Good Friday, is the one who came to earth, born of the Virgin in Bethlehem, to save his people from their sins. So this Advent season, then, hope in that. Have hope because your greatest need has been met. God has provided for you. He has provided for you a way to be right with him. And that should bring us hope. It should bring us peace and love and joy, as we'll talk about. So I want to ask today, then, what does it look like to live with this hope? Is this just being optimistic? Is this like some sort of karma, like, all right, I'll put good out there, and maybe it'll come back to me, that'd be nice? Or am I saying, hey, say you've got hope in Jesus, and your anxiety, depression, hopelessness, loneliness, they'll all just, poof, go away. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, not necessarily. Life is going to continue to be hard, Because our hope isn't ultimately in this life. It comes from knowing that the hardships of this life are not the end. When life is overwhelming, we take heart because, as Jesus said, he has overcome the world. And biblically speaking, hope doesn't have this level of uncertainty that we often associate with it. Right? When we say, we hope we have something, what we're usually saying is, well, that, whatever it is, might not happen, but we kind of hope it does, it'd be nice, right? We're thinking that, but it could still go wrong. And I think we sometimes transfer that notion of hope to our thoughts about Jesus, right, about the Bible. Well, I hope Jesus comes through, but just in case, I'm going to work some things out myself. I'm going to really stress out about the situation because it's all up to me. I'm going to make sure I'm perfect just in case, and hopefully Jesus comes through, right? And, you know, especially when it talks about just stressing out in these situations many of you who know me know i do this as much as anyone else right preaching to myself here as well but hope in scripture is not this what if that hey maybe jesus comes through maybe he doesn't but hope right biblically hope in christ is knowing that he has come to save right knowing that he has redeemed us we might not know when ultimately we'll be in in heaven with him forever when that will come to fruition eternally but we know that it is sure it brings peace. I thought a lot this week about the question, what does it practically mean to live in hope? I thought it'd be really nice to come here and tell everyone hope in Jesus, and that sounds really nice, and then you walk out the door and think, okay, what does that mean, right? How does that change our lives? And first and foremost, I thought about prayer, right? What better way to demonstrate that our hope is in something greater than this world? Prayer is a consistent reminder of God's goodness to us, his care for us, and it's a way we can commune with our creator. I'll just say from personal experience, I know others have had similar experiences, that in some of the most stressful, hopeless times in my life, prayer, earnest prayer, has been the way God has most clearly reminded me of where my hope needs to be and what it means to have hope in Christ. And secondly, when we talk about practically living in hope, You should think about this idea, again, that hope is certain. I want us to think for a second. Just take a second and think with me. What is it in this world that you often hope in? Is it a job? Is it finding a spouse? Having children? Getting a raise? Uh, You know, any of these things. What is it that in this world you often have hope in? Now, when we say you hope in these things, it's usually I hope that happens and that will make everything better or make a lot of things much better. But what do all those things have in common? Well, they are fleeting. We don't know if they will happen. I'd love to get a a great job someday, or to have, you know, this or that, but we don't know if it's going to happen. It's not guaranteed. But think with me for just a moment about how your life would change if it was guaranteed. If that thing you're hoping for, whatever it might be, a better job, a raise, a spouse, again... The list goes on. Whatever it is that you put your hope in, what if it was guaranteed? You know, you knew, not when, but you knew at some point down the road you would get that thing. You had hope, but it wasn't there yet. I remember when I was a school teacher for a couple of years, and as some of you know, it was a, whew, it was a rough couple years, man. It was difficult. And I'll never forget when I finally got to turn in my paperwork that said, I'm not coming back. I still had a couple weeks, or actually, there was a couple months left to do that job. And I went in each day, and it was still really hard. The students were not magically respectful. The administration was not magically understanding. Uh, things were still really, really difficult. But my whole outlook had changed, because now I knew this is going to end. <laughs> this will not be forever. Day-to-day life didn't change. The difficulties of life were still there. Tough times still happened, but there was a whole new attitude because I was certain that the the thing I hoped for was coming. Now, whatever it is you might hope in, whatever it is you tend to to put your trust and hope that if this happens, life will be better, it might not happen. But we know uh, that Jesus Christ can be trusted. Hope in him is certain. If you knew your hope was going to be fulfilled, then it would change your day-to-day life practically. It might not change your circumstances, but it would change how we look at our life. So much in this world is fleeting, but Jesus Christ is not. Let us live each day with the hope that through Jesus Christ we can be right with God. That there is a glorious future awaiting those who put their faith in Christ. Are there still going to be hardships on earth? Yes but we can face them in faith because we have hope. We have hope not in something that's what-if, maybe, possibility. It is sure. Jesus Christ has come, and he has come to save his people from their sins. Looking at the Christmas story, at the birth of Jesus, this brings us hope because God is true and he is faithful. He'll never leave us nor forsake us, and he has come to meet our greatest need. Living in hope Hope means that in all circumstances, we know that God is with us. This is living in gratitude for what God has done and longing to be with him forever. Not a life of duty and frustration, hoping to be good enough for God, or pretending to be happy in difficult situations because, well, I guess I'm supposed to have hope and, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's knowing that God is in control and wanting to honor him in our lives. Brothers and sisters, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to always be prepared to answer anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to tell people why you have hope. Because as we've seen at the beginning, it's uncommon in our world today. We have hope because despite our sin, despite the fact that we naturally have every reason to be hopeless, despite the fact that we are naturally separated from our creator and we can't bridge that separation, someone came in our place and paid the punishment that we deserved we have hope because not only was a redeemer promised but the redeemer has come this morning let's remember what the angel told joseph in that dream that the child would be jesus and he would come to save his people from their sins in a world filled with hopelessness let's be those who go forth with a message of hope and if you don't know jesus today i encourage you to talk to me or someone here this morning we'd love to talk to you more about that as we look forward to Christmas with, with anticipation, let us hope in Christ, because it's in him alone that we can have hope. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Renaissance Church. If you have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more, please feel free to contact us by email at renaissance.mtl@gmail.com gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. It's our passion to love Jesus, love each other, and love our world.